Now, the wrath of God is something that is so misunderstood by so many. It has two aspects. One of the aspects is that God, with a, an act of God, comes down and, and judges. That is, he, he sends a miracle, like Sodom and Gomorrah is an example, like the flood, like he will do when he ultimately blows the earth to smithereens. Those are, those are an expression of the wrath of God clearly. But if you look at Scripture, you'll discover that they are relatively rare. And uh, man gets the impression that he can get away with sin because God does not reckon time the way we reckon time. It's as simple as that. What looks to us as being a delay in judgment is no delay as far as God is concerned. God doesn't deal in terms of delays. A day with the Lord is a thousand years and a thousand years is a, as a day. God doesn't we're locked into a time-space circumstance, so we've got to think in terms of time. But God doesn't have to think in terms of time. And uh, so the years go by, and men say, look, we're getting away with evil. You never get away with evil. Never. God doesn't always pour his fire and brimstone upon a Sodom and Gomorrah. He did upon one city at one time in history. That destruction was never repeated. I realize it's cute to say that if God doesn't destroy San Francisco, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, I like that. It's cute. But God does not have to destroy San Francisco just because they may be as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah. God will, in his own time, send his wrath, right? Now, the second aspect of the wrath of God, that which you find most of the time, is what we would call natural consequences of sin. They're built in. A man that does this has this result. The soul that sinneth, it shall die, right? That's a clear cause and effect. You do this, this will be the result. Now, you go through Scripture, and I, I'm not going to take time to do it here, but uh, a good exercise in Bible study would be to go to the book of Genesis and read through the book and talk or just mark down every cause and effect circumstance you can find where God says if you do this this will be the result if you do this this will be the result and it's both positive and negative but in this particular part of the text we're primarily interested in the negative alright if you follow this course of action this will result then go through Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy so on <clears throat> find every cause and effect that you can. Page after page after page of cause and effect. If you are lazy and don't want to go through all the 66 books, just take the book of Proverbs and see how many cause and effects you can find there. You follow this course of action, 
you're going to have problems. What do we, we just read at the end of the chapter 23 this morning. That if you have a desire for wine, then this will be the result. It's clear, right? Those are things that are going to be caused. You know, when they, when they, they talk about the, the millions of alcoholics we have in the United States, they can avoid the problem if they just read the 23rd chapter of the book of Proverbs. It tells you very clearly what is the outcome of a desire for wine. Okay? Now, it's, it doesn't mean that every single person is going to get delirium tremens. But it does indicate that that is one of the ultimate results involved in the process of drinking. Okay? So, you have... You have cause and effect, cause and effect. Now, you see, the problem is that the, the, the advantage you have, the problem that the wicked have, is that you cannot, they cannot see beyond today. And you can, because you have the Word of God. Now, they could, if they, if they really uh, searched and looked, and if they would come to the Savior, they could be rescued in the midst of this. But the thing that is, is sort of a secret agenda for the unbeliever is that his expectation, the thing that he is hoping for, the thing that he is grasping for, the thing that, that he's going to get in the long run, is wrath. There are consequences to sin. You just cannot get away, with, away from them. Consequences of sin are just as sure as the, as the law of gravity. A man jumps off a ten-story building, they say that really the fall doesn't hurt him. It's a sudden stop at the bottom. And it's that sudden stop at the bottom that is the wrath of God. You cannot violate God's law of gravity and defy it without it getting you. And you jump out the window and you begin to fall and you say, hey, I got away with this. Why, I just... I'm floating downward. Now you see, you'll feel fine about it until you hit bottom. I think that John DeLorean is a terrific example of this. A man who is very, very successful in any enterprise that his hands touched. His, he was a King Midas in many ways in the business world. Had a dream. Had a, had a wish to build a particular kind of car. And it didn't do as well as he wanted it to. He needed ready cash. It, it looked like he made one stupid error. I'll guarantee you, if you knew the facts, there were little compromises in his moral life until finally he made the major compromise. Now, just think about his reasoning for a moment. I'll just do it once. It's just to get my car company going. It won't do any harm. See? Those are the, the, the reasonings that he had. And when it came all down upon him, the man was left absolutely without hope. What he got was wrath, the natural consequence of sin. Right? God didn't have to zap him with a lightning bolt. All he had to do is have some narcotics agent smell his cocaine. And when they determined that, that he had 
cocaine, he was arrested, he's going through the trial, and you'll be happy to know that it's, it's a confirmed fact. He read Chuck Colson's book, Born Again. Chuck Colson mailed it to him, and uh, just a few weeks ago, uh, John DeLore and his wife were baptized in a little church in Virginia, a little Baptist church, where they're, they've been attending uh, during this trial period, and uh, uh, there is every indication that he and his wife both have come to, uh, to faith in Jesus Christ as a result of the wrath of God. All right? God is faithful. And we probably will see John DeLorean in heaven someday uh, just because uh, of the fact that, that he went through this experience. He probably, when he, was, when he was riding high, he probably didn't have much time for God. But he's had lots of time for God lately. And the result is that there's every indication that, that he really has made a sincere commitment. It's not a sensational thing like you have with some of these other people. There seems to be a genuine heart change uh, in John DeLorean's life. So the wrath of God worked in his case, you see, in terms of bringing him to God, which is, of course, one of the reasons that God defers judgment. Romans chapter 1, it tell, or is it chapter 2? Uh, it tells us, don't you know, despise, do you despise the, the kindness and the patience and the forbearance of God? And it tells us why God is kind and patient and forbearant and why he, he seems to delay punishment. Why? Because he wants you to repent. He doesn't want you to perish. Now, really, Satan in the garden um, used this angle of the immediate with Adam and Eve. Um, God said that if they ate the, f the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they would die, right? Satan comes along, and in essence, what he says to them is, you won't drop dead. You're not going to die instantly. It's not like grabbing hold of a thousand volts of electricity. It's going to kill you instantly. You can eat that fruit and still make it at least a little ways. See, he didn't tell them that the ultimate outcome would be death. Now you see, the human race would have ended in a hurry if God hadn't been so patient. They ate the fruit. The consequence was they began to die because God is patient. And so Satan, in a sense, was right. They didn't drop dead. Satan, Satan knew the edge that he had was the, the character of God. He knew that God, being a, the kind of character he is, loving and kind and patient and all of the rest, that God would not immediately send fire and brimstone upon Adam and Eve. And he used that to his advantage to say to them, sin doesn't hurt. Now, let me ask you, next time you look at your wrinkles in, the, in the, the mirror, next time you feel an ache and a pain, next time you have a weed in your garden, next time your wife has a baby and screams in pain in the process of the birth of that baby, next time your wife uh, has a desire to rule over you, next time that, that you, uh, you find yourself unable 
to do the right thing even when you know what's right. You ask yourself, does sin hurt? Of course it hurt. The pollution of sin has been passed down through the race. It brings death. You don't drop dead every time you sin. Otherwise, we have a lot of dead people around here. Okay? God is patient. God waits. He defers judgment. Primarily, he defers it because he deferred it upon his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would become the sin bearer. And the full, the full aspect of God's wrath was poured out upon Jesus Christ on the cross when he became our substitute. And God was righteous in deferring your sin because God was going to finally pay for sin in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how he could do it and still maintain his integrity. But God did it because he loves you and because he cares, but that doesn't cancel out the effects of sin. You choose a sinful lifestyle, there are going to be consequences ultimately. And you may get away with sin and build it up and build it up and build it up and keep getting away with it until finally, finally, you're going to step over that line. And the wrath of God is going to be upon you. Now, the thing that happens with the unrighteous man, Proverbs chapter 10, verse 28, the hope of the righteous is gladness. The hope of the righteous is gladness. But the expectation, strong word for hope, the expectation of the wicked perishes. It perishes. It comes to an end. And again, the, the word perish does not mean a loss of being. It means a loss of well-being. All right? You're not going to get the end that you wanted when you are wrong, when you are wicked. Proverbs 11, verse 7. When a wicked man dies, that puts a time frame on it for sure. When a wicked man dies, his expectation will perish. And the hope of strong men perishes. A loss of well-being. Look at Job chapter 8. Job chapter 8. Verse 13. So are the paths of all who forget God. And the hope of the godless will perish. Loss of well-being. Job chapter 27 and verse 8. For what is the hope of the godless when he's cut off? What's the hope of the godless when he's cut off when God requires his life? Will God hear his cry when distress comes upon him? Will he take delight in the Almighty? Will he call on God at all times? See, the idea is that the man who lives a life of habitual wickedness, and wickedness, remember the word raw, it means wrong. It doesn't mean that the guy shoots his wife or that he's a drunk. The wicked man is a man 
who does what is wrong as opposed to what is right. That's all it is. We, we think we put such a strong connotation on the wicked. I'm sure you go to work today and you look at your boss and say, do you realize you're wicked? You know, he's going to, you know, fire you or something. So be careful what you say. But the fact is that if that man has done one thing wrong, it puts him in the category of being wicked because it's wrong. Right? It is a series of wrong acts, wrong thoughts, wrong life that makes a man more and more wicked. We're all wicked. Praise God, when you know Jesus Christ, you can be a forgiven wicked person. And you can be right with God. And when you're right with God, you who are wicked, you who are crooked, you who are wrong, now are made right in his sight. And then God expects that there be conduct in your life in keeping with that righteous standard. All right? So we're all wicked. But the wicked versus the righteous is the man who does something wrong as opposed to what is right. And the righteous man is someone that does something right as opposed to wrong. Right? Very practical thing. And so the wicked are, have developed such a habitual lifestyle that when they get into trouble, often they don't even know where to begin to call upon God. Job chapter 11. Job chapter 11. In verse 20. But the eyes of the wicked will fail. And there will be no escape for them. Now watch this. Their hope is to breathe their last. <laughs> you talk to a man who doesn't know Jesus Christ and you say to him, what's your hope? He'll give you all this stuff. Okay? What do you think would happen if you say, sorry, you've only got one hope. And that hope is to die and face God in judgment. It's the only hope you have. That's the bottom line, folks. That's it. When you get right down to it, the only sure hope that the wicked has is death and the wrath of God. That's all he has. He thinks he has far more, <clears throat> but he doesn't. So the wicked, the wrong, Rasha, in this particular verse, which is an intensive word, intensified wrong, he only can look forward to wrath. Fleischer, theologian, said this, if the, if the righteous wish for anything, their wish reaches to no other than a fortunate issue. But if the godless hope for anything, then there is to them in the end as their patron as, excuse me, as there, I can't read my writing here, uh, it, there is to them in the end as their portion, not the good they hope for, but wrath. Let's say that again. The righteous wish for anything, their wish, wish reaches to no other than a fortunate issue. In other words, the desire of the righteous is going to be granted. Okay? Why? Because he's righteous. So therefore he asks for no unrighteous desire. 
His heart is righteous. His desire is righteous. And therefore, he is going to attain what he anticipates because of his righteousness. All right? But if the godless hope for anything, then there is to them in their end as their portion not the good they hope for, but wrath. Okay? Now the word for wrath is the word E-B-R-A-H. Hebra. There are three Hebrew words for wrath. Kasap, Hema, and Ebra. All of them speak of God's anger at sin. Okay? All of them speak of God's anger at sin. But Ebra speaks of the fierceness of his anger. It's a very, very strong word. Of the three, Ebra is the, is the strongest. Very strong. It means an outburst of passion when used particularly in the human sense. It's an outburst. It's the full venting of one's anger or one's passion in some other way. In this particular case, it's God's anger. It's God's wrath. It's used in a number of places that are, I think, significant for our purposes. Let's look at Psalm 78 for a moment. Psalm 78. Kind of get a taste of it. Psalm 78, of course, the historical psalm dealing with the people of Israel and God's dealings with them and shows a lot of God's patience. Um, and in verse... Well, let's see. What should we do here? Let's go back to... Uh, let's go back to verse 43. He performed his signs in Egypt his marvels in the field of Zoan, turned the rivers to blood. See what we have here? It's a, it's a recapitulation of the, of the uh, plagues on the nation of Egypt. And uh, when you get down, after talking about all the things that happened, you get down to verse 49, it says, He sent upon them his Hebra. Got it? He sent upon them, what did the New American Standard translates it? Burning anger. He sent upon them his burning anger, fury, indignation, trouble, a band of destroying angels. He leveled a path for his anger. He did not spare their soul from death, but gave over their life to the plague and smote all the firstborn of, of, of Egypt. Now, the implication is this. Remember, a miracle... A miracle does not necessarily mean a supernatural event takes place. It's just as much a miracle when a natural happening comes with perfect timing. Okay? In the nation of Egypt, they, they had had frogs before. They had had lots of frogs before. But they had frogs now in abundance at Moses' command. Okay, that's the miracle. More frogs than, than usual. We know they had frogs because they worshipped the frog. Okay? They really had a stretch of their, of their credulity concerning their gods because they worshipped the frog. They certainly wouldn't kill a frog. But when you got them in your mixing bowl, <laughs> you know, God says, you want to worship frogs? You like frogs? I'll give you frogs. All the frogs you can have. What I'm saying is this, the phenomenon that took place 
in the nation of, of Egypt were by and large the wrath of God with natural events. Timing was the miracle. But they had, they had, had, had boils, they had had, they had had, uh, they, they obviously had had night. The great thing about the story there was it was night in Egypt and in Goshen where the people of Israel were, it was light. They had this horrible darkness. So, you see, the, the miraculous was involved, and I, I wouldn't discount that. God brought the plagues without question. But they were mild by comparison. But when it talks about his fury and his anger and his burning anger, when it talks about his Hebra, it's talking about when the angel of death flew over. And here was a phenomenon that had never happened. The firstborn in every single house was slain. You go out in the street, heart heavy, and hear all your neighbors are talking about how their son died. You know, you know how, how difficult it is to face death in a neighborhood anyway. Just one person dying, it stirs everybody up. They seem to rally to the cause and try to help, and it's good because it draws people together in this way. But how about if every house right down the block, every one of them, had a son slain? Say, God poured out his wrath upon them. God has the moral right to be angry at sin at, to that extent. Book of Isaiah, chapter 13, the living God. Ezekiel, chapter 22, verse 21. It's talking here now about the certainty of judgment. Let's let's pop back just a few verses. Uh, actually, wow! You can, because of all of the sin, because, behold, then I will I smite my hand at your dishonest gain which you have acquired, and at the bloodshed which is among you. Imagine, imagine God looking down upon the United States right now. Do you fellows out in the business world know of any dishonest gain going on? Think God could find any? How about uh, bloodshed? Do you know of any? You know, the, the abortions going on in this country, 4,000 a day, something like that, more than that, are going on in this country. Boy, God looks down and he says, okay, you want to you shed blood? You, you want to have dishonest gain? Well, can your heart endure? How tough are you? How tough are you? Or can your hands be strong in the days that I will deal with you? And you pick on somebody. You better pick on somebody your own size. You don't mess with the things that God says. You really think you can beat me, huh? Spoken and shall act. And I shall scatter you among the nations. And I shall disperse you through the land. And I shall consume your uncleanness from you. And you will profane yourself in the sight of the nations. And you will know that I am the Lord. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, the house of Israel has become dross to me. All of them are bronze and tin and iron and lead in the furnace. They are dross of silver. Therefore, thus says the Lord, because all of you have become dross, therefore, behold, I'm going to gather you into the midst of Jerusalem. As they gather silver and bronze and iron and lead and tin into a furnace to blow fire on it in order to melt it. So I shall gather you in my anger 
and in my wrath, and I shall lay you there to melt you, and I shall gather you and blow on you with the fire of my wrath, and you will be melted in the midst of it. As silver is melted in the furnace, so you will be melted in the midst of it. And you will know that I, the Lord, have poured out my wrath upon you. See the word wrath in verse 20? You see it in verse 21? You see it in verse 22? Each time it's Hebra. Right? The wrath of God. The pouring out of his anger. That's all they have to look forward to. And I've said this so many times, you'll probably get bored hearing it, but I've got to say it again. When the wicked seems to be having a good time, don't bug him. Because let me tell you something. If he can get a good time now, let him get it. Because you've got to grab all the gusto you can because ultimately he'll face the wrath of God. Now don't you go grab his gusto. You know better. All right? Don't you do the things that he does because you know the end that he's going to have, and you're going to have a different end, okay? So you don't live his lifestyle. You don't copy the wicked. You don't envy the wicked. You feel sorry for them. They're more to be pitied than censored. You look at them, and you realize that, that out of the midst of all of their hard work and all of their, 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 their attempt to get ahead in life and all of the rest, that once in a while they buy a few minutes of temporal happiness, Lord, bless them, let them have it. Because it's certain, absolutely certain, that death is their lot and they will face the burning wrath of God. One of the greatest sermons ever preached in all of history, probably, was Jonathan Edwards, a sinner in the hands of the angry God. I don't know what's wrong with us preachers today. We don't seem to be able to do this. Even Billy Graham doesn't do this. Jonathan Edwards would preach that sermon. And men in their pews would fall like flies to the floor, weeping because of their sin. It's a very simple message. You can read it and say, what's so great about that? I don't know. Jonathan Edwards was a deep man of prayer and and I think he bathed that message every time he preached it in prayer. But God used that message to bring unbelievers to Jesus Christ in an unprecedented way. I'm not talking about the kinds of superficial uh, decisions that seem to be made so often today. I'm talking about men and women who just suddenly saw their sin as God sees their sin. And their hearts were broken and their hearts were crushed. And they came with deep repentance. And God transformed lives. But I'll tell you something. If you can, can grasp a little bit of what it would be like to be a sinner in the hands of an angry God, you'll never be the same. God doesn't wink at sin. And neither should we. It's a terrible, awful thing. And it's the only hope that the unbeliever has. You get that? It's the only hope. In the final analysis, it's the only hope that he has. Because his life is on a, on a path of wickedness. 
and you follow that. Is it any wonder? Is it any wonder that God tells you that you are not to walk in the counsel of the ungodly? Is it any wonder that he tells, tells you not to st- sit in the seat of the scorner? Not to stand in the place of the, the sinner? You're different. You're a new breed. You stand apart from that. You can cultivate and develop friendships with unbelievers. The agenda that ought to be on your heart and mind all the way through that is to bring that person to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. Not just to get another notch in your Bible, but because you care that he's a sinner. You want to see him rescued. And that's the most friendly thing you can do. To compromise and participate with him in his sin puts you in his category. Your hope then becomes wrath. And believe me, there are natural consequences to sin. Though you may know Jesus Christ as Savior, a handful of acts of sin is not going to condemn you from salvation to an eternal hell. But I'll tell you this right now, you still have something to pay because God's promised. God has promised, just like he's promised that the sinner is going to be in his angry hands in future judgment. He promises you that if you sin, he's going to spank you. And you ain't been spanked until you had God spank you. All right? He loves you. And whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son. And once again, just remember, payday someday. My mother wasn't very good at spanking when we got a little bit older. We were big boys and she had a hard time handling us. And um, my dad was gone, right? Now she could use a switch like no way you ever saw. A little tiny switch. But um, the thing that we feared the most in our home was when mom would say those fateful words, wait until your father gets home. And you know, I, I learned in those days a little bit of what it would be to be ashamed at the coming of the Lord. The reason being, that my dad would be gone sometimes for three months at a time in evangelistic me- meetings. Uh, but those were the days where people like my dad anyway didn't uh, hop in an airplane and just fly to another city. My dad took the bus and took the train and some long distances. We were living in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho at the time, and we'd drive up to Spokane and put him on the train, and he'd take that, that old night train that used to, you know, the one that stops at all of the, every little cow town in between here and, and Minneapolis. Well, Dad used to hop on that train. He used to, like, go to Minneapolis, and then he would take the bus from Minneapolis to some little town out here and then he would start working his way and he'd come back in the middle of the night some night uh, on the Greyhound bus. We'd go down to the bus depot and meet him. Oh man, after he's been gone for a couple of months or so, boy it's good to see your dad. Fantastic. But we always had that little thing in the back of our mind, wait until your father gets home. And mom would drop it. 
when there were things that she couldn't handle. And she'd say, stop it, and we'd stop it. But we knew, we knew that if we didn't stop it, then she'd call Dad, and Dad would come home as quick as he could. He'd, he'd be there the next day. He'd travel all night on the bus. We always had that. So we'd stop doing what we'd done, but we weren't sorry for it. We hadn't made it right. We hadn't gotten it right, and we wouldn't do it. And it was a, it was a rebellion in our heart, and Mom would say, all right, you were going to deal with it when your father gets home. So Dad would come home, we'd have a happy reunion, and everything's going great. And in my heart, you know, I'm always saying, because I was the one that got worse than anybody else, because um, I was the worst, and I'd say in my heart, she's forgotten. Isn't this great? <laughs> Boy, because a whole day would go by, and everybody's happy, and then Dad would say, Son, uh, want to go for a ride with me? <laughs> We'd get in the car and he'd say, uh, what about this? What about this? What about this? Mom and I had a long talk last night. I understand that uh, you did thus and so and such and such happened. And go down the list. Yeah, Dad. Yeah, yeah. Get to the end and said, son, what do you think we ought to do about it? Oh, I, I, I think we ought to just forget about it, Dad. <laughs> It never worked. <laughs> it never worked. And then would come Dad's very special discipline. My dad was probably is probably one of the most tender men. If ever there was a man that had the pure gift of showing mercy, it's my father. The tears would well up in Dad's eyes. But that didn't seem to affect his blow at all. <laughs> But oh, how it broke his heart to have to punish sin. I think that's what God is like. The natural consequence of sin is the wrath of God. And you just can't get away to sin. That's why you have to come and put it on the cross. I've got Sunday morning's message just fresh in my mind. Because here you have a world looking at God, saying, God, you're not so hot. If you were who you claim to be, you would have dealt with sin past. Just think of all the people that have sinned and gotten away with it. The cross is the answer to that question. Sin will be paid for. Sin will be paid for. The thing that every sinner and every saint should realize is that God did what a human father could never do. He had an innocent son and he allowed that son to be the substitute for our sin. And not for ours only. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. Not for ours only but for the sins of the whole world. And God was able to delay the ultimate judgment of sin and defer it to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God provided a means in the Old Testament whereby a person could 
fix his faith upon Christ's future, just like we fix our faith upon Christ's past. And he made provision and arrangement so that, that the final judgment, which would mean the, the burning of eternal hell, would be deferred for all of those who would place faith in Jesus' future. By the sacrificial system, by calling upon God, all of the things that the Old Testament says that, that were available to people for the dealing of the sin question, right? It was because Jesus Christ would die that God was able to do that. You go into the future, and now we look back at the cross in the same way. Jesus Christ was the only solution to the sin problem at all. And you see, the, the thing that happens now and that happened in the past was those that place their faith in Jesus Christ through the provision that God made are saved on the basis of the death of Jesus Christ. And the same thing is true now. If a person will look back to that cross and look at Jesus Christ high and lifted up and will... We'll, we'll look in faith to him just like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness even so the son of man was lifted up so that men could see him and as men see him and in faith believe that his death is sufficient for their sins then God saves those men and the issue now again is the person of Jesus Christ who is the central figure of all history and if it's, it's a matter today not of how bad a person is or how much sin he's committed or how much he deserves the wrath of God, but whether or not he's willing to look to Jesus as the one that takes his penalty. And when people reject Jesus Christ, what they're saying is, I'll take my chances with an angry God. <laughs> That's all that rejection of Christ is. I'm going to take my chances alone. I'm going to do it my way. Well, you do it your way, my friend. There's no survival. But when you look to Jesus Christ, he's the solution, he's the answer. And we are so privileged. And I cannot, I can't help but say a little chorus that says, after all he's done for me, after all he's done for me, how can I do less than give him my best after all he's done for me? Every fresh glimpse of the cross of Calvary just it makes me determined more and more to live for him. And when I look, you know, it's in, the, in the words of a dear blind songwriter who's now with the Lord, Helen Lemmel, a very dear friend of ours, lived for years in Seattle and, and, and penned these words from a heart of worship to the Lord. The chorus of her song says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I'll tell you guys, the more I look at Jesus Christ, the more I think of his sacrifice, the more I realize how, how the things of earth are so useless. Remember, this verse, sets our perspective for some very important financial principles. The theme of this and the truth of the outworking of this particular, this particular idea in verse 23 is brought out in the next eight or nine verses here. 
Because God wants you to gain a new perspective, to realize where your hope is, to realize where your goals are, to realize what you're looking for in life. And it's not the thing that the worldling looks for. Why can I give my money away and not be concerned about it instead of hoarding it like the wicked do? Why can I do that? It's a very simple thing. I have, without that money, everything that I ever need, I have the Savior. And in terms of eternal benefit, you know, it's so marvelous because you can't lose on this thing, folks. Christ said to his disciples that if you give up houses and lands and, and uh, wives and children and all of these things, if you're willing to surrender all of that to me, then I'm going to give you eternal life. All right? And restore a hundredfold everything you gave me. Remember this chart? Look at it again. God's there. You're here. The wicked man's over here. Treasure's here. Okay, where, what treasure is? When an individual gives his desires to God, God gives him the desires of his heart. God gives him everything he needs. God gives him blessing and the overplus. He gives you far more, all right? And, and you end up with this coveted treasure. But you don't covet it to get it. Covetousness is sin. You covet God and only Him. And He's the giver of every good and perfect gift. You see? You pass it through Him and He gives you what you need, what you, even what you want, because your wants now are altered. All right. This man goes directly after it. He goes right after it. Grab all the gusto you can. And what does he get? Wrath. That's what he gets. Every time. That's what he gets. That's the only hope he has. You have the hope of eternal life and all of that, but you also have the hope that God has made promises for now. He hasn't given you timing. He'll put you through tests. He can do it in his own way because it's not your problem. It's his problem. And he has miraculously creative ways to deal with you. But you do it God's way. And you can't lose. All right? Why? Because your hope is fixed on him. Your desire is in him. And the only thing you want in life is God. And God takes care of the rest. You couldn't be in a better position. But you are like, if you're like the wicked and you say, well, God isn't doing so hot, I'm going to go after this myself. You'll buy only one thing. His disciplinary wrath upon you. So the choice is yours. God has made provision in Jesus Christ to give you everything. If you do it His way. I was pride. Thank you, Father, for what we can learn. Help us to grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, we pray. Oh God, that we might have the knowledge of the Holy One as our primary goal. Thank you for what we can learn in these days. We'll praise you in Jesus' name.
Amen. Have a good day.